0: I was raised by independent people since so I wanted to continue the tradition I guess I never wanted to be a spectator I wanted to be a player Welcome to the Idea
1: Generation Podcast a show about creative entrepreneurship My name is Noah Callahan Bever and each week I have the distinct pleasure of talking with some of the most innovative ideators in culture to try to figure out how they make their creative decisions This week's episode is extremely special for me for a very straightforward reason My career frankly would not have happened if it wasn't for Sasha Jenkins when I was 17 years old, I called the offices of Ego Trip magazine every day for two weeks straight, asking how I could get down. Ego Trip was my favorite magazine at the time, a mix of music and art and humor and culture that was utterly unique. It was founded and helmed by Sasha, along with Elliot Wilson, Chairman Jefferson Mao, Gabriel Alvarez, and Brent Rollins. When Vicky Toback called me back after I blew up their landline for those aforementioned two weeks, they made me senior editorial assistant. AKA, Intern Who Wouldn't Go Home. And my life was changed forever. Sasha, Elliot, Mao, Gabe, and Brent would teach me everything I needed to know about writing, storytelling, magazine making, and how to be a professional, and also how to just be a man. Subsequently, Sasha would alleyute me two opportunities that would change the trajectory of my career and my life. He set me up under the late Dave Bree as a fact checker at Vibe in 1997. And then in 2002, he invited me to be the editor-in-chief of Mass Appeal. Those breaks, combined with the skills and ambition that he and the rest of the ego trip imparted on me, are the cornerstones upon which everything else I've ever achieved has been built. But getting me started is just a footnote on Sasha's epic career. Between 1988 and 1994, Sasha launched three publications that are among the most respected and influential magazines in hip-hop history. First was Graphic Scenes and Explicit Language, a graph scene, followed closely by Beatdown, the original hip-hop newspaper, and finally, Ego Trip, the arrogant voice of musical truth. After that, Sasha penned some of Vibe's most memorable cover stories, reimagined Mass Appeal magazine, and made a litany of TV shows, including Ego Trip's The White Rapper Show. When Ego Trip dissolved, he revived Mass Appeal, turning his attention to documentary filmmaking, and changed everything once again, with genre expanding looks at The Wu Tang Clan, Rick James, Louis Armstrong, and Biz Markey, among others. His latest project, Resurgent Pictures, founded with his wife Raquel Cepeda, promises to continue a legendary tradition of storytelling on the highest level. Needless to say, I'm forever grateful for everything Sasha's done for me. I'm immensely proud and honored to have had the chance to talk with him here and to share some old stories, but also to continue to learn from someone who's already taught me so much. Tres Generaciones is the tequila for dreamers and doers who persevere against all odds it's made from 100% blue agave, distilled with water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, and triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness. The brand's been around since 1873, and their demonstrated track record of success is the reason why Tres is eager to champion creatives with perseverance everywhere. So whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage, let Tres be your running partner on this journey. Are we we're rolling, everything's good? Cool. Well, thank you for coming on Idea Generation, Sasha. I'm really excited. Listen,
0: man, I can't believe I'm here.
1: (laughs) It's been, you know, I mean, it's surreal to be interviewing you after, you know, almost 25 years of friendship and working together and all kinds of stuff.
0: Well, you've certainly started your own thing, your own life, and crazy backstories yourself. Mazel tov, as they say
1: as, as I said to you on text the other day you know you are the catalyst and the foundation for all that so I appreciate I, that. I appreciate you Sasha how did your parents professional life inform your career ambitions
0: well my dad was a filmmaker and my mom was a painter so when I look at all the stuff that I've done it's been a combination of moving pictures and still pictures and storytelling, right? So my parents were storytellers. I grew up in a a household, although it was divided, my parents weren't together. I knew that there was a premium understanding of culture and art. And so at a young age, that was instilled in me. So I would say my parents were my biggest influence actually.
1: And I know you were born in Philly and your early life was in Maryland, but your sort of most formative years happened in Astoria, you know, which I, I think is a, it's a very specific place and a very specific time in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, how did that shape
0: your worldview? Well, Astoria was very pol- racially polarized, right? I came from Maryland and where I grew up, In Maryland was pretty mixed. There were like white people and black people living together. Where I grew up in Astoria, although my building was very mixed, there wasn't much intermingling amongst people, right? And so I had experience with, all kinds of people in my youth and in my family there's there's some diversity in my family so i was always precocious and into like moving around right and so in the story of one thing that brought people together was graffiti so at a young age i gravitated towards graffiti and i wound up befriending all kinds of kids that i normally wouldn't befriend if i just stayed in my neighborhood and played like neighborhood sports like the only way kids my neighborhood got out of the neighborhood was maybe through sports if they're on a team. We 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 just played stickball, whatever, amongst ourselves. We weren't really on a team, so the only way to really connect with other people was, for me, was hip hop related things or graffiti. And so through graffiti, I met lots of different kinds of people. And Astoria is a really diverse place, like the Greeks and Italians and Irish and Latinos and Black people, and you know, being able to come together for a common cause which was graffiti, ironically. That put me in a unique position to learn different things about different people because what I realized is the white kid who likes heavy metal has a boombox and the black kid who likes hip hop has a boombox is the same kid, the same guy, right? And so when you're able to relate to both of those guys and that puts you in a unique position. And so when I was coming up, I was into skateboarding, I was into hardcore music, hip hop, things that are very common today for kids of color. When I was into it, I was a weird old black dude. Now it's like kids in the hood, which is great. Their world is way more broad. They're into all kinds of things. And I think that's why we have the kind of art and things that younger people are creating today. But I think that's one of the reasons why I have somehow stayed contemporary was my understanding and involvement. It's also, for me, very important to be directly involved because I learn. From hip hop, from hardcore, from graffiti, whatever, being a practitioner and being involved or understanding these cultures, these subcultures has always been very germane to my evolution, and so just being open to understanding a story which was you don't go down this block, you don't go down that block, but I could because I was friends with the Greek kid who wrote, you know, and I was I was okay. And their parents, the kids' parents didn't know any black kids, right? So you can't really fault people for not knowing people. You can fault people for judging people. But, like, then people get to know you and things change. But, I mean, the story was also mad racist. There's all kinds of crazy shit that happened in the story apart to me and other people I know. But I think having that experience really helped me sort of navigate the world at large.
1: And how did you end up with things like punk rock and skating uh, sort of? On your radar
0: um skate skating was like the 70s i had an older sister and we had a skateboard and first or second real skateboard wave so when we moved from maryland i still had my little skateboard but i got into bmx before skating and once bmx started to fade i got into skateboarding again but a a friend of mine named haji who i started beat down newspaper with he was into skating too so we kind of got into it together and we would travel to different places to skate spots. you go to the, the Brooklyn banks under the Brooklyn Bridge or the Harlem banks in Harlem or Bay Ridge or different places you would travel to go to different skate spots. It was very much like graffiti. Graffiti writers travel all over the place. Skaters travel all over the place. And a friend of mine named Chaka who wound up being in lots of bands, he grew up in the Woodside Projects. He wanted to get into skating. He knows it's a rock and he gave me a tape to check out of hardcore. He's already in the hardcore scene. I listened to that tape. I didn't know any of the bands. and I asked him about this one specific thing. I was like, what's this band right here? He said, yo, it's the Bad Brains. And guess what? They're black. I was like, get the fuck out of here. He like, the Bad Brains, they're all black. I didn't know who the Bad Brains were, whatever. But something about their music spoke to me. And so I was like, I got to buy the record. And he sold me his beat up copy of Eye Against Eye of Bad Brains for like more money than he paid for it. But that was a gateway for me to get into a whole other world and one day be in a band with a member of the Bad Brains.
1: crazy also 20 years later, you would tell me that I need to go by Eye Against Eye and that would be mind blowing for me in the late 90s. I guess, how seriously did you take your life as a graffiti writer?
0: I mean, I wrote. Just like people skate, and they're professional skaters and there are kids who just skate. There are way more kids who just skate than there are professionals, right? So I was a kid who wrote. I wasn't anyone important. I wasn't anyone special. But what I learned from graffiti between politics, between networking, before the internet, before cell phones, I'm meeting all kinds of kids from all over the place. And it piqued my interest in wanting to do a zine, right? So my interest in graffiti, I did more time thinking about graffiti and writing about graffiti and publishing magazines about graffiti than doing graffiti. But I'm okay with that at this point. So many people at this point in their lives are still holding on to what they did in 1986. And that's cool. You were king of the, the one line in 86. Like, much respect. You've got the photos. That's great. But what have you done for me lately? To, co- to quote Janet Jackson. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's cool to live for those moments and to treasure them. But like, how are you pushing the culture and the conversation forward? And so my contribution wasn't whole cars and it wasn't like burners. It was, I did my little zine,
1: which also- well, I was going to say- what was the auspice for you to actually get into publishing a zine yourself?
0: Well, going back to my friend Chaka, he was on the hardcore scene. And in the hardcore scene, there were zines, right? So it was a combination of hardcore zines and then phase two published a magazine called International Get Hip Times, which when I purchased that, it just blew my mind. And I wrote to phase two and I was like, hey, man, I'm a fan of what this zine. Like, I want to do one myself. Phase Two wrote me like a six-page handwritten letter, and of, so
1: wait—you just saw the the like publishing information in the thing, and you just wrote, wrote a cold letter.
0: Wrote him. He wrote me a six-page handwritten letter telling me that I could do it. He didn't know me from a can of paint, pun intended, right? But that was like put a battery in my back, and so my friend Chaka and his friend Freddie Alva did a hardcore compilation tape where they recorded they recorded all these bands. And put it on a cassette called the New Breed compilation, and it was in a comic book plastic, and it came with a with a zine, a booklet. And so basically, I ripped off. I went. I asked him who the printer was. And basically, if you look, if you know the New Breed compilation, you see my first the first issue of my zine. It's the same thing. So usually, I learned from my friends, right? So I saw what my friends did, and it inspired me to do what I did.
1: And, and how did you put together the money to get this printed and figure out the distribution and all that part?
0: Uh, I asked my mom for the money. And in 88, asking my mom for a grand was like you no know, small feat. And I didn't think she'd be able to get it to me, but my mom gave me the money and that put a battery in my back. And as far as distribution, there was only one or two stores in the world at that time. There's a place on West Broadway called Soho's At. But writers from all over the world would go there because it was around the corner from Henry Chalfant studio. So you'd go to the store and you knock on the door to maybe meet Henry. And so while I was down there selling my zine, me and this guy Hush went over he said, hey, let's go knock on Henry's door, knock on Henry's door. Henry doesn't open up, Carl Weston does. Carl Weston would go on to start something called Videograph, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And so all these things just happened the way they happen.
1: That's crazy. So how many issues of, of graphic scenes did you create?
0: There's about four issues of graphic scenes that we made. Um, the first two were more elaborate in terms of printing, like spending real money and then later issues were more like Xerox style.
1: And and where were you getting like the, you know, all the assets and the photos and all that kind of stuff To I was
0: snapping photos, getting some photos from Henry, getting photos from other writers. I mean, in graffiti, photographs or like trading cards right so i had some hot trains that people wanted so i was able to trade with people
1: and what era of graffiti is this is like what was going on you know obviously the early 80s trains were sort of the mainstay what was going on in 88 to 90.
0: well they call that the clean train era because there were a handful of writers who were still painting trains um so it was you know a big deal to get a shot of a clean train but at that point people were sort of moving towards walls, and also that's when the freight train things started to happen. Okay. So that's when things kind of went off the trains, onto the walls, onto the freights.
1: And how many units of this were you selling at the
0: time? Uh, My zine, the first issue, I probably printed up 5,000 copies. Okay. I was at my mom's house recently, I found some issues, but sold most of them.
1: That's crazy. Yeah. So how do you get from creating these four issues, starting to network with you know, Carl and Henry and you know, real players in the graffiti scene, to creating the first hip hop newspaper, Beatdown?
0: So Haji again, it was a friend I grew up with, Haji Akibade is a guy I grew up with who was into skating, into graffiti. we were into things together. We were into traveling and doing things together.
1: You guys went to high school together? We didn't go
0: to high school together, but we hung out all the time. And he was a producer, right? He made hip hop beats and he actually like kind of worked with Marley a little bit, like oh. helping out Marley and stuff. And he knew rappers. So we were both into music. We made music together. I played bass or whatever. And he used some of my bass lines. And he was like, I had gone away to a community college in upstate New York and I worked on a school newspaper and I saw the print bill and it was like 600 bucks. I was like, that's it? So after I did it, I did a bullet at that school upstate, I came back to New York and I connected with Haji and I said, look, let's do this hip hop newspaper. It only costs whatever, whatever. And he had relationships in the music business. He, he was down with Rush Management, knew Russell. He knew a lot of people in the music business. I knew no one, but. I knew photographers and writers, so we, you know, put our resources we put our resources together in terms of his relationships in the game, and my relationships with creative people. We went to the printer, which is across the street from Queensbridge Housing Projects. It was like six hundred and forty dollars and thirty cents. We went with exact, split in half, cash, change, everything, paid for it. So that's how that happened.
1: And you know, at this point, it's still very nascent stages of hip-hop publishing. But The Source is happening and is, is, is a pretty big deal by 91, 92. Um, what was it that made you want to create your own platform versus trying to sort of, you know, get a job at, at, at The Source or, you know, um, or work within any sort of existing structure?
0: I was raised by independent people. You know, my dad's a filmmaker, my mom's a painter. So, I saw them do things for themselves. And so I wanted to continue the tradition, I guess. I had no desire to write. I take great pride and much respect to the source and everyone who's gone through there, but I've never written for the source. I never really wanted to write for the source. Not that the source isn't great, but I, I didn't really care. You know, for me, it's like for years, sports, I wasn't into sports because I'm like, why am I getting excited about watching sports? It's not me doing it. I could never get into sports watching it, like being a fan. It's like, what what do I care about watching someone do it? But once you start to play a game and you understand it, then sports and watching sports and being a spectator becomes more interesting, right? But I never wanted to be a spectator. I wanted to be a player.
1: So when you guys were sort of cooking up your first editorial strategies, how were you thinking about differentiating yourself? And what was the thing that you felt like places like the source weren't covering.
0: I think it was more a point of view and just having more voices. I don't know that we were trying to do anything much different from the source, but I think that there just needed to be, if there's Coca-Cola, there needs to be Pepsi and there needs to be more voices. And so I don't think what we were doing was that radical, but I think it was important in that we offered up a different perspective and a different point of view.
1: You know, at, it, at its peak, How big did Beatdown get um, in those initial years that you were involved?
0: Um, Beatdown really took off after we left. We were there for a year. Um, Beatdown went on for years and became a magazine and printed and has all kinds of fans all around the world. So when I was doing it, for us, success was going to Tommy Boy and knowing that from studying the source, Tommy Boy always took out the back cover. So we knew that that Tommy Boy, paying for the back cover for a couple of years, paved the way. So we went to Tommy Boy, offering them the same deal. And that sort of paved the way for us to have money to publish the magazine. If we had no ads for a long time and we knew if we could get that deal done, that would help. But when other people saw that Tommy Boy advertised, it was like, oh, Tommy Boy's in here. Okay, cool. It must be good. So it was all like sort of leveraging relationships to create opportunities.
1: So And at this point, you're around 20 years old. You're still living at home. Haji's still living at home as well. Yeah. But you're just starting to create a little bit of momentum. And, you know, is it a profitable endeavor?
0: Um, Was beat down profitable at that point? We were able to, I mean, we're living at home, right? So keep doing it. We we didn't have car payments, so it was all right.
1: Okay. Um, We talked briefly about you mentioned meeting Carl Weston and I know that you were, you know, pretty heavily involved in some of the seminal uh, uh, editions of uh, Videograph. Um, how did you sort of, you know, fit into that creative matrix? And then, what did that platform really offer you?
0: Back then, I had wanted to be a filmmaker, and Carl and wanted to be a filmmaker as well. So we had that in common.
1: So, oh, so you were, you were already had sort of ideas around being a
0: filmmaker you know, when I was a kid. OK. Um, so Carl was older than me and had equipment. And we talked about film and things we wanted to do. Because ultimately, Videograph was a platform for him to make money to make films. So I was a younger cat in that matrix. And I was just there and then it, was just, it just started to happen.
1: And I, as I have recently sent to you, uh, the ad for Graphic Scenes and Explicit Language that ran in one of the Videograph uh, episodes has made its way to YouTube now. Um, can you tell me a little bit, is that is that fair to say that that's your directorial debut?
0: Um, there's something else I directed before that, but yeah, that commercial was an early, early me directing something in my mother's house with the real Christmas tree and all shit.
1: It's crazy. What What is that like to see that pop up on YouTube, you know, 35 years later?
0: Again, I think nostalgia is great, but it's not going to get me on the A-Trade right now. <laughs> Every once in a while, though, someone will recognize me from videograph. Like, oh shit, it's a poetry moment. Oh, your mother, or whatever. It's cool.
1: Yeah, how did the, the how did the poetry moments happen?
0: Poetry moments and videograph happened because I was doing poetry. Some of it was really bad, but I liked <laughs> doing it. It was back when we drank 40s so and drink a 40 and just freestyle poetry. And it was you know you do that, and then people recognize you on the street. And there was a um commercial from my magazine and Videograph One so it was based on a true story where I was walking down West 4th Street near the McDonald's that used to be there and some kid recognized me from Videograph and said something slick and all I did was I just literally went behind my head and did this. I just made a funny gesture and yo, 25 dudes just started chasing us through the West Village <laughs> and um yelling Videograph, and I was like, damn, this shit's crazy, man. So they didn't want my autograph, they wanted to hurt me.
1: Yeah, I mean, what, what kind of reach did Videograph have in that moment? I think, you know, it, it's hard for young people today with this ubiquity of the internet to understand, but, you know, Carl was selling VHS cassettes, but they, they had reach.
0: Carl used to wear sweatpants, and sweatpants pockets are kind of loose. And he, you know, he had knots like this, cash. <laughs> Big ass knots. I mean, it was VHS, right? So people were buying them, but obviously I would say two out of five writers were buying them, and like the other three were just bootlegging the shit. But considering how much it was bootlegged, it got around.
1: That's crazy. Um so you start beat down, and you know, in that you you meet two very consequential people that would uh, be collaborators with you for years after that um, in Elliot Wilson and Chairman Mao. You um, also do things like put Wu-Tang on their first cover. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Well, Elliot Wilson, um, we, me and Hazzy, we did beat down and I guess he found a copy. We did a, we did a show with KRS-One and Sick of it All. A friend of mine was a, a promoter and I forget the name of the venue, but she did a show and said, hey, why don't you come and give out your newspapers? So it was KRS-One and Sick of It All and someone else, right? It, a really it, interesting it, build.
1: So the hardcore band and yeah. KRS.
0: You know, so I guess Elliot got a copy and called. We had a voicemail. He called the voicemail and said he wanted to be down. So then we had a little office in Long Island City and he came down. And like, yo, I know you. You knew him from, from college. And I was like, yo, I know you, too, man. You went to a high school, we went to high school together. He was like a dude that I saw in the background, but I didn't know him. But he we went to school together. So he got down with us. And um,
2: what, chair,
1: what high school was that? Bryant High School. OK.
0: And then Chairman Mao, I was interning at a place called Third World Newsreel, which has Black Panther films and all kinds of leftist, interesting people of color shit. And I was an intern and they'd always told me there that you've got to meet Jeff Mao. You know, he's He loves hip hop. He's a DJ. And so one day I'm in the elevator. I see an Asian guy with a bald cut and a Carhartt jacket. And I'm like, yo, you're Jeff Mao, right? And this is like, you know, 91. And so that's how I met Jeff. And, um, you know, he was a record collector and he was very knowledgeable about hip hop. So that was the initial nucleus of Beatdown. Um, And, uh, you know, those are cool times.
1: What was the division of labor between you and Haji at b
0: Haji was more of, well, look, he had computer skills, right? So he, he's a creative, he's super, he's an artist, he's a creative guy. He had computer skills, he had the computer, he was laying stuff out. I was more editorial, dealing with writers, editing, stuff like that. And then also, he took the lead in some respects in the business, and um, I worked with him on that. But. That's kind of how we divided it. I kind of stayed on the editorial, try to focus on writing and editing and photography. And he held it down in a lot of other respects.
1: Okay. And after about a year, um, your relationship with him sours um, and you guys and you and Mau and Elliot all end up leaving. But what happened that sort of was the catalyst for that?
0: I mean, it's I grew up with the guy, we we laugh about it now. It's just stupidity, just like miscommunication, you know, and misunderstandings and egos and just being young and not really being smart, you know? So um, again, I mean, I guess going back to your earlier question about a mistake, that might've been a mistake, but we learn from your mistakes and, you know, we look back at it now and we say, wow, we were, we were foolish to do that. But, you know, peak childhood friends have squabbles. Because ultimately, that's what it was. It didn't have to be that deep. But, I mean, you guys were
1: in your 21, 22 years old and trying to run the business. It's, yeah. yeah. I, mean, I think I mean, many people go through that kind of.
0: Totally. Yeah. You know,
1: and you're figuring out who you are in this, you know, in real time and changing probably, I'm sure, as well. Definitely. Um, So Beatdown was a strictly hip-hop magazine. Um, after that, you take a beat. And shortly thereafter, EcoTrip starts to come into focus and you form a partnership with initially Elliot and then also with Chairman Mao. What was the idea for that? And, and what was that you know, inciting uh, sort of moment of innovation that you know, brought that uh, together?
0: It's very simple. It was, I wanted it to be more of a re- reflection of my life, right? I like skateboarding, I like rock, I like hip hop. And I also thought, like, what are we offering? What, what, is, Why does the world need another hip-hop whatever? At that point, there were more magazines. So it was like, very simply, if we have other stuff beyond hip-hop, it just opens us up to more advertising, right? So skate, rock, whatever, it's fashion. So I just wanted something that was a little bit more contemporary to kind of how I li- lived at that point. And if you think about it now, that's how things are today. I mean, that's what you went on to do in Complex. Very much something that was very broad because the way we process culture now is way more broad than it was back then.
1: And and how was the product received by the marketplace and by advertisers when when you brought it to market?
0: Well, ego trip was free, so what can you really say? You know, mm-hmm. initially, like you don't like it, fuck you, right? But <laughs> I think the response was good for a free magazine. You know, you have. Art from Mr. Caves, you know, comic strip called Tales from the Rails. Um, interviews with skaters, you know, my friend Chris Keith was in the first issue. Chris is someone I skated with in Queens. He went on to be one of the Supreme guys and uh, professional skateboarder. You know, so it's like it was more of a reflection of where I felt culture was going. And hip hop obviously is a driving force, and it was always the driving force of Ego Trip. But I wanted it to be more diverse. And that's what attracted me to Mass Appeal. But that's all the, all the story. We'll get
1: there. Um, on a practical level, you know, how did you put together the pieces to go get ego uh, EgoTrip you know, printed and, and then distributed as well?
0: Well, first, we had to get money to make it. So that's when I went to Henry Chalfant and that, like Columbus wanted three ships. I went to Henry and said, give me 10 grand and I'll turn that 10 grand into much more than that and so with that money i think we got a computer we're able to print like one or two issues
1: and and advertising advertising
0: this i mean we didn't have the money to pay outside of the initial 10 grand we didn't have money so it's all advertising it wasn't necessarily the magazine was free at that point so it wasn't magazine sales
1: were you doing all the sales and that that side as well
2: yeah
0: um i was doing a lot of the ad sales but there are other people who did ad sales as well and uh elliot and mao are more so focused on editorial and i tried to be an editorial and on the business side at that point point.
1: and how did you guys conceive of the the sort of business side of this partnership
0: i mean business side is not is like kind of an overstatement or, or understatement or, i mean we we're just doing Right. No one was formally trained in business is all instincts. I knew that if we did a magazine that wasn't just hip hop, we have a better chance of getting more advertising. It's not hip hop. We're not competing with other hip hop magazines because we can say, hey, look, kids now like all kinds of shit, including skateboarding and rock and, da and fashion. Right. So the business mind, the brilliant business mind was just like very simply, what am I going to offer to the marketplace that's different?
1: You know, it- that was a time where, I, like a lot of the ad buyers, everything was very balkanized, right? Between like white magazines, black magazines, you know, women's magazines, men's magazines, Trip obviously lived in, in a zone, you know, in the middle of a, a very complicated Venn diagram. When you would take these meetings, um, to try to sell these ads, were the marketing people receptive? Do they understand your vision?
0: There were enough people who did, but there were a lot of people who didn't because they're still very putting everything in a box like no kids who like hip hop don't like this. Like, what do you mean? Like kids, white kids who like rock, love hip hop at this point, like it's, you can't keep putting people in boxes. So there were people who didn't get it, but there were enough people on the advertising side who got it and got us to a point where, like, we even had credit with our printer. Right. So it was like all kinds of things that came into play, like having a distributor, a legitimate distributor who felt like they could sell X amount of copies, created confidence for the printer, created confidence for advertisers. So all of that coming together made Eagle Trip possible because, again, outside of the 10 grand, we didn't have shit.
1: And so while you guys are making this, you know, both you and Elliot and, and Mao start becoming embraced by the more established hip hop publications and they start... Inviting you to write for them, um, particularly Vibe. Um, I'm I'm curious, how did you think about balancing the priorities of your own entrepreneurship and your own business with, you know, these new opportunities um, to sort of reach a broader audience?
0: Yeah, I think it was it was. I mean, ultimately, Elliot wound up working at the Source, and I was working at Vibe. He was a music editor at the Source. I'm a music editor at Vibe right? They compete technically, but then we had this magazine that we're both working on, right? So Ego Trip was the farm team for those magazines. Like we would say to people, yo, I can't really hook you up with too much dough, but I slide you a review at five and you'll get a check. So we kind of, we kind of used the system to sort of pad our own pockets and push us forward. So while we were both trying to do our best at these publications, we were also, also like investing money that we made from those publications into the into ego trip so it was kind of cyclical in terms of how we fed, how we ate and how we fed ourselves and how we fed other people
1: and how did the the sort of you know sort of management set at these companies look at you and look at ego trip um sort of you know as competitors or you know, how, how, did you, how did they feel like you fit into the, their ecosystem?
0: I mean, they're, the level of distribution, like Vibe was like printing 500,000 copies. I mean, we were doing like 20,000 copies. I mean, we are we're like not even a gnat on an elephant's nuts, you know, so they're not thinking about us.
1: They thought it was cute. Right? But, but you brought a credibility to them.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that was cool. And sometimes the editors there would write for us, you know, more established. Like Alan Light wrote some stuff for us once, you know. So I think they thought it was cool. I think they thought that we had a thing. And Ego Trip definitely, at one point, had a thing in the, in the way a band comes together with people and has a sound and has a thing. Ego Trip had a thing, and people seemed to dig it at the time.
1: To that point, you know, when Ego Trip started, it, it was. Very diverse in its coverage, um, but the tone and the voice was, I think, a little drier and, and, and pretty far from where it would eventually reach at maturity. And I'm curious, sort of how did the humor and that voice develop um, in the magazine?
0: I mean, humor to me is super important, like it's a sign of intelligence if you if you have no sense of humor, I can't fuck with you. you know and I think all of us at Ego Trip have a sense of humor, and there's a level of diversity there, you know Gabe Alvarez is Mexican from the l a and French from l a is black and Vietnamese, and Jeff now is you know Chinese from Massachusetts, and Elliot is Greek, Ecuadorian and black, and I'm African American and haitian, so we we covered a lot of ground, and there were a lot of things to laugh at. I mean, I think things are so fucked up. If you can't laugh, you're really fucked up, you know? So I think we all share that sensibility and we applied that to what we did, including like having a fake publisher who was a white guy named Ted Bono or uh, doing books called The Big Book of Racism. I think race has, I would say race in my career in general has been a pretty consistent through line in terms of how... I'm trying to communicate with people and have conversations with people. And so ego trip was foundation for that.
1: So say, how did Ted Bono come to be?
0: Ted Bono unscrambled spells beat down. So that's all it is. It's really stupid. And, um,
1: <laughs> so this, this was an inside petty joke, basically.
0: Inside petty joke. But the, the, the real joke was that people would believe that a white publisher was doing this magazine. He'd write, I mean, Bono and Trump are very similar in terms of their tone. It's true. And people went for it. Like, they're going for that shit now. So Ted Bono was on to something back then. I,
1: I will say, as a 17-year-old intern in my first week there, I was very unclear as to whether or not Ted and Galen were actual people right. or not. Right. And it, And, in fact, I was very surprised when you called the office and Vicky or whoever was like, "Oh, Sasha, okay. yeah, oh, he's he's the, he's the owner," and I was like, "Oh, okay." I thought, Ted, oh, all right.
0: all right, It's funny. So, so how does it work with you now? Like, how, how are you gonna like? We're gonna get into this.
1: What do you mean? You? Oh, me? Yeah, yeah sure. Let's... Your
0: your entry into ego trip. So, as I remember it, you reached out to us saying that you wanted an intern or something, right?
1: Yeah, I was finishing my senior year um of high school and i had to get a internship and i sat there with all the rap magazines and i really you know my taste leaned in the indie way i looked at on the go and i looked at ego trip and i was like on the go looks really pretty but ego trip makes me laugh on every page like every inside i live for every inside joke every thing you guys put in the folios and all that stuff. And I just called over and over for two weeks till somebody called me back.
0: who called you back?
1: Vicky. Okay. And I came in and interviewed with Gabe on Valentine's day, 1997. And my first day was March 9th. And I remember showing up and it was a mad scramble because you guys had a Biggie cover shot and done and Vibe was poaching the story that Cheo had written for you guys to try to, you know, do this rush death coverage, and this, of course, threw the entire magazine into disarray in the eleventh hour. Um, and that was that was how I got down.:
0: Wow. And I remember one point our computer died or something, and um, we needed a computer to lay out the magazine. And you you got a new computer that you loaned us, like you set up your new computer in our office.
1: Yep, my mom had promised me as my graduation present as I was going to NYU in the fall that she would get me uh, a computer. Um, and it just so happened that like the same week that that was going down, I was getting ready to graduate and she was talking to me about the specs I would need to do word publishing and you know write papers. Um, it was right when you, Brent had come, was coming to the city for the first time. And you guys were lamenting that you, the computer had just died or whatever. And you had this new art director who was coming to join the team. Um, and what are we gonna lay out the computer on? And I was like, well, if you just give me a key to the office, all I need it for is to write papers. So yeah.
0: And, and so what did your mother think of that?
1: You know, um, I don't think she really understood it. But, you know, I had the the sort of uh, good fortune of the fact that my little sister um, went to school with Bill Adler's daughter, and they were friends in like first grade. And so my mom called Bill and was like, my son wants to do this crazy thing. Do you know these guys? And I don't know how well you knew Bill at that moment, but he was obviously very familiar with what Ego Trip was. And he was like Maureen just let him do it like this is how this is how careers happen right um
0: and look what happened
1: yeah well and then and then I went to you that summer after you know setting up the computer and asked you for uh if you could help me to get a summer job at I thought the extra large clothing store because I knew you knew Mike D which was a big deal for me And I thought I'd been working at uh, All Comics on Bleecker Street. And I thought, well, you know, I can work retail. And obviously, Ego Trip is not in a position where I'm going to be getting a full-time job anytime soon, or even everyone's doing this for for the love. And um, you turned around and said, how do you feel about being a fact checker at Vibe? You just have to lie and tell them that you're 21. So I took my 17 year old ass into the Vibe office and told them that I was 21. And Dave Bree took me out for ham sandwiches. And that was the beginning of my career.
0: But Dave Bree knew you, were, you weren't 21. No,
1: Dave, Dave was in on the-
0: Right, rest in peace Dave Bree. Yeah,
1: rest in peace Dave. So this is, the magazine is evolving. Tell me about, yeah, how do you, you know, Initially, it's you, Elliot, and um, Mao, And then in 1996, Gabe Alvarez joins. And then in 1997, Brent Rollins joins. How did that happen? And, and... Gabe
0: was, editing, was working at a magazine called Rat Pages in L.A. with Brent. They had a section called Underground Zine where they wrote about zines. And so me and Elliot were flying out to L.A. to do a Cypress Hill cover story. And um, we met Gabe. He interviewed us for the column in Rap Pages. And we just thought he was cool. And so at one point, we're like, yo, dude, why don't you come out here and move to New York and work on a magazine? We had no money. I said, but yo, you can stay at my mom's house in like, Queens. You're good. My mom's good with it. Welcome, we'll break her off a little bit of money. It's not a big deal, but you can stay there. And he's crazy enough to do it. So Gabe came out, moved to Astoria, Queens, and stayed in my bedroom. And um, soon after, I guess Brent joined, followed suit.
1: And that—that is that really when the the team came into full maturity. And I also think the voice. You know, I always thought, uh, as a fan of those early issues, the level of humor and the level of writing were matched by the photography, but not always necessarily by the art direction. Um, It still had a very sort of zine feel. And then when Brent came, I felt like he really was able to augment all of the storytelling that you guys were doing and really take things that took a little bit of imagination and a leap of faith and bring them to life, like Count Chocula, for example.
0: Yeah, Brent, Brent's a genius. Brent's a great designer. I mean, he brought a lot of flavor to it. And I think that really elevated the magazine. Also, the paper stock at that point evolved to be a little bit more jiggy, as they say. Um, but yeah, I think all those guys together is like made a couple of classic albums you know, that are great. And I think memes, right? I think if you really look at what we were doing Ego Trip with the ads, the internal ads, those are like early memes.
1: They absolutely I mean it's
0: We got receipts.
1: Yes. There's a lot of uh a lot of culture that would go on to be very, very uh successful and broad that started an Ego Trip um at a very, very early in nineteen ninety eight, you guys decide that you are done with publishing um a bi-monthly magazine okay what was the sort of catalyst for that
0: when well, we started doing these books we did the book of rap lists which has lots of fun facts about hip-hop and music and records and people seemed to dig that and we were thinking about what was next and so 9 11 happened but we had this idea to do a book about racism and then when 9 11 happened me personally, I got spooked. I was, I was like, yo, I don't know if the world's ready for this book. I don't think we should do it. And so there's some trepidation for a while, and then we just decided we should do this. And so we had another Dana Alvarella, who greenlit the first book, and that happened because I met Dana because I wanted to do a Bad Brains book, and she's a big Bad Brains fan, right? The book never happened, but Ego Trip did. Yeah. You know, so it's like all these things in my life, things that I'm really interested interested in, opened doors, right? So you get taking me in about a Bad Brains book that doesn't come together, but this other thing does. So you got to open up, open the doors and look at all the opportunities.
1: And, and you, you paid me a couple hundred bucks to transcribe about like 50 hours worth of interviews for the Bad Brains as well, uh, which opened up my eyes to a whole new world. Um, so,
0: so then from there, we did the big book of racism. Someone at VH1 gives it to a woman named Christina Norman, who's Big Cheese. Yes. She likes the book. She then gives it out to a bunch of her staff. And someone says, hey, we should do a television show with these guys. So VH1 reaches out to us. And we did a show called TV's Illest Minority Moments, presented by Ego And So we just looked at the roles people of color have played on television over the years. That did okay. So let's do more. So then we came up with a series called race rama which is another exploration into race, three-part series. It did okay.
1: So it got you on Bill O'Reilly. Got us on Bill O'Reilly. You had a very early, uh, you mad doggy moment.
0: Yeah, but it was preempted, if you remember, by the, by the DC sniper.
1: Are you serious?
0: Yeah. It was supposed to, it didn't air in LA because,
1: wow. I, I saw it in New York. We all right. we had an ego, I mean, we had a, a massive viewing party at my place in Astoria.
0: The right. Mass appeal, ego tributing session.
1: Yeah, it was like I can't, you know, Justin and Mary and a bunch of right. we we're, were working on.
0: I don't remember what happened.
1: Um, so no, I didn't, but I didn't really. I just remember you getting into a heated back. And I forth. got into it with Bill. Yeah, you and Bill were going. You 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 were not happy with it, right? Which I'm curious about because yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned you know race, politics, and race humor was very central to. Sort of the latter half of Ego Trip as a magazine. And then obviously was the sort of core premise of the big book of racism. But you're publishing these things in, you know, a Clinton, post Clinton, uh, colorblind, we don't see race era of pop culture. How were these things being received? And like, could people, were people wrapping their heads around the satire and the commentary that you were providing.
0: Some people didn't get it. This uh, Asian woman who works for the publisher, we have a section in the book called The Yellow Pages, right? And It's about Asian culture. Now, mind you, Jeff Mao is Chinese, Brent Rollins is half Vietnamese. Um, they're leading the charge in some of these jokes or whatever we're exploring. But the Asian woman who worked, the publisher, was like, I refuse to work on this. This is not cool. So it's like where we are now, like comedians, can't do shit. Like, imagine if that book came out now, it'd be crazy. Like, I mean, we had a challenge on one of our shows where we had Cool Keith. We blindfolded Cool Keith and had him guess the race of the strippers who rubbed, who, who were dancing in front of him, blindfolded. And guess what? He got it right every time. <laughs> right? But there's no fucking way. No. You do that shit now, never.
1: No, I'm well and I I've thought about that a lot too, you know, in retrospect thinking about those sessions sitting around that those computers with the five of, you know, five of you guys and, and me in the back writing these jokes and you know, you guys sort of humorously always called it embracism of just sort of acknowledging everyone's inherent biases and making fun of them uh, as a way to sort of take the power out of them. Um, And yeah, and I I think, I do wonder how that could fit in with the way that people think about these issues today.
0: I mean, I just did a series called Everything's Gonna Be All White, and I think I take lots of inspiration from Ego Trip, and it didn't go over well. Like people were pissed off, Black people were pissed off, and there was nothing in that series that hadn't been said before. My white friend, Mr. Caves, uh, plays a sort of uh, pro, not prototypical, but a particular white perspective. Right? It's not every white person is not like this guy. Very particular, specific um, white perspective that is like not meant to be serious. Like he's obviously a caricature. Like we're not promoting ideas of guys like that who are serious. Like you know he's. And I had him in a gorilla suit, and you know he's joking. He's like, "Oh, they're gonna tell me I can't wear a fucking gorilla suit now? Fuck out of here!" You know what I mean? It's like it gets to that point where you can't wear a fucking gorilla suit if you're white. Sometimes you know what I mean? We're all very so sensitive, and I think sensitivity is good, but I think there needs to be balance. Like people are too fucking precious now. It's like if you can't have a good racial joke with your white friend or your black friend or anyone, then we're fucked. And and, and those jokes are good only when you understand what, it's like, if I make a joke about white people, I'm like, yeah, white people, they can't, whatever, they can't rap. It's like, no, white people can rap. That's not funny. If you make a joke about a white person who likes the Smiths and there are little nuances in there that you know, only a Smiths fan will know, that person will laugh. It's like, oh shit, this black dude knows his shit, right? And for me, it's always been communication. It's like, when you like all these diverse sorts of things, it's communication. It's, it's intelligence. It gives you information that you need to survive and communicate and to make shit. And I think a lot of that is lost now.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's all, I, it's flattened in many ways. And, you know, to, to your point, there is, the increased sensitivity, broadly speaking, is often positive. But. To your point, when there is a level of nuance and a level of familiarity, then there should be sort of an ability to be a little bit more casual and to, yeah, take the sort of power out of some of these ideas.
0: I mean, Chappelle, right? He wants you to turn in your phone at his shows. I mean, Chappelle is a genius, like he's a genius. He's a genius. Like, I tell him to his face, he's a fucking genius. And how you don't see the genius in what he's saying and what he's doing, and take it to the to, to, to point of like wanting to cancel him or like shut him down. It's like people have just lost their sense of humor and lost their intelligence. Like, this is intelligent humor that's informed. When humor is not informed and it's racial, it's just bad. It's just not, no good. But there are things to learn in what Chappelle is saying. He's also critical of his own people as well, right? And you can be critical of whatever you want, but he has a point of view that's very important, but people fucking are scared.
1: Do you ever have any anxiety about any of these old jokes that were in like the big book of racism being being brought up 20 years later?
0: Good luck finding it. I mean, I guess you can get it on eBay. I mean, it's not too many books in circulation, but that was then I did it at a certain time in my life. Um, I mean, you know, whatever. I have white friends, I have black friends, I have people who are friends. Like, I'm not worried about that shit. I mean, no one's thinking about that. No one gives a fuck.
1: Let's get back to the story. So you and Ego Trip do a, a series of shows um, that are race focused. And then this births uh, a, another piece of content that you made that I think was years ahead of its time, The White Rapper Show. Um, what? What inspired you guys uh, to make that, and how did you get it sold through?
0: So we, one Christmas, we we're meeting with an executive, uh, a guy named Jim Ackerman at VH1, he took us out for drinks. Like, hey, you know, of Rama did great. What's next? What do you want to do? We're knocking him back. And I literally, I'm drunk, and I'm like, yo, we should do a show called The White House. We make white people move into a house and rap. And he looked at me and said, that's a brilliant idea. That's what happened. You know, initially I wanted Everlast to be the host. I forget what happened. Um, and we wound up getting MC Surge from third, from third base. Rest and, of history.
1: And, and the show rated well. And
0: the show was a blockbuster. I mean, the ratings that they got then on that show, if, if the show got that now, I would be fucking Dave Chappelle right now.
1: And that led to you guys doing the Miss Rap Supreme.
0: Yeah. But well, what happened was, White rapper show did well. New president of the company came in and said, "You gotta do something that caters more towards women." So we were ready to do White rapper two, like so a many,
1: season two. of
0: Yeah, so many white rappers were pissed. Like it just, it just pissed a lot of people off. And um, funny yeah. funny story was, did a book with Eminem, and I'm in his basement in Detroit. Just out of nowhere, he says, you know what, man? You know what I hate? I'm like, what? I fucking hate the white rapper show. He went on and on about how I he hated it. I said, yo, man, you know I created that show, I right? He said, what? I was like, yeah, I created that show. I was like, you get the joke? You know what the joke is? What? doesn't matter. Look, fuck, look at you. Like, no one cares about that shit. Because the show wasn't really about white rappers. It was really a, a conversation amongst white rappers about how they felt about themselves and their place in hip hop. It wasn't really about anything beyond that. I thought we chose a broad range of kids. Some of them like Vanilla Ice, but are passionate about it. And they, they really tried and wrote rhymes and there's a lot of big creative component to that show that was very real. But ultimately the goal was to have a conversation about race in hip hop driven by white people in hip hop. I mean, it was one woman Persia who's from the projects in Rockaway Queens, but she's white. She used the N word, right? Some people don't feel feel good about that, so we had a whole segment that kind of dealt with that. And so, no one probably ever in her life said, "Hey, you probably shouldn't say that," because she's growing up with these people and they consider her one of the one of them. But like, not everyone in the world is going to understand that a white woman saying the N word is not meant to be harmful, right? Where else are those conversations being? Like, where else are you having a conversation about a white rapper saying the N word?
1: Or is that yeah. And and you had her in a house with uh, that progressive rapper from Seattle, who I will always remember having the quotable of um, "I have bigger fish to fry," like white supremacy, which I feel like was very prescient and also ahead of his time. Yeah. But yeah, but that you had those, those different tensions because all of them, they're each of them were drawn to this format and to this style of art from different places. And, you know, finding different touch points that, that connected to sort of personally. Um, yeah, I mean, it was hilarious. And just
0: like being black, there's not, there's not only one, there's not just one way to be black, there's not just way, one way to be a white rapper. Like, they're not all the same, they're different.
1: Today's episode of the Idea Generation podcast is brought to you by Tres Generaciones Tequila. At its heart, Idea Generation is about the triumph of creative visionaries. But as anyone that's listened to the pod before knows, success always comes in the face of adversity. However, while the conditions creatives operate in may not be perfect, your tequila can be. Tres has a rich history dating back to its founding in 1973, which helps explain why the brand is a champion of those who persevere. The best value props are often the simplest, and Tres Generaciones is as straightforward as they come. Made from 100% blue agave and water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, Trace is triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness so whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage let tres be your running partner on this journey tres generaciones for those ready to fail twice and get up tres so instead of doing instead of following up the hit with the sequel you guys are tasked with figuring out a way to, Broaden the audience and particularly to court female viewership. Yep. Which is a challenge in anything rap related.
0: Is a challenge in real Why would you think that a show about women in rap would do well when women in rap in real life don't do well? Now, the tables have turned. Women are killing it now. They're, they're the shit, and I'm glad it finally happened. But back then, a show about women, rappers, wasn't going to be a big deal. But even those ratings compared to now, like people would kill for, for those ratings, but they just weren't good enough for another season. Okay.
1: And when that comes to a close, it sort of ends the chapter of Ego Trip. And you guys never really collaborated again after that. Yeah. What happened?
0: Um, finale of the show, um, the, the last battle, uh, we're in LA. They rent us a house up in Mulholland, like fucking bawling out of control house, right? I stayed there one night. You know, the band Jet apparently stayed there before us and we wound up finding a, a dildo in one of the drawers. So all kinds of wild shit was happening there. But, um, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a fun time. So we were all staying there. And um, the show wraps. Everyone's hugging. People are popping bottles. We're all there. Then we turn around. Yo, where's Elliot? I don't know. Elliot didn't drive. He didn't wasn't the driver back then. I guess he took a car. He left. This is before Uber and all that shit. It's like when a LA cab is like two hundred dollars. He was editor in chief of XXL. So he was doing okay for himself. So then we go back to the house. Everything he, 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 he bounced. He's just gone. Oh shit! What the fuck happened? I don't know. We wrap up the show. Go back to LA. And we go back to New York. Wrap up the show. And um, I don't know. I met with Elliot, and he was like, "I'm not feeling it anymore." Um, and that's his prerogative, and whatever you know, he has his yes, his me he, 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 he has his reasons, and I think ultimately he did what was best for him, which is all that matters. But um, at that point, I was like, "Okay, guys, let's keep going. Let's keep doing this." And um, at a certain point. Ego trip is like a, a Flintstones car, right? Like, there's no engine, there's his feet. If all the feet aren't going in the same direction, they ain't gonna move. So, I think that different guys had different perspectives on what they wanted to do. And then, and then there's Gabe. Gabe is a fucking soldier. If the feet are all going in one direction, he's gonna fucking lead the charge. He's gonna do all the work. He's gonna bust his ass. He's gonna believe. And, um, I don't think other people did so at that point i said well i gotta keep on trucking so i became a partner at a company called roadside and we launched a production company called automatic films and one of the things that we did was a series about black days we did a series about a black skateboarder for bet called terry kennedy being terry kennedy terry kennedy was a black professional skateboarder from compton who wrapped his own clothing line his own sneaker and so turn is popping. And um, so then I moved on. I moved on to continue to do film and television. that.
1: When you think back on, you know, that unraveling, you know, I guess, what do you think, what, what were the things that held the unit of five together? And, you know, are there, are there things about how, it was managed that you would do differently in hindsight?
0: I mean, I think the way it was managed was, I think people need to be, like some guys in the crew were perfectionists, right? And would not do things unless it was like 100% right or they felt good about it. And that's not how I moved. I benefited from guys who were perfectionists to me. I benefited from God who so a perfectionist, right? Because that sort of real focus and making things as tight as they can, like made the product great, right? But I'm the guy who's like, We gotta keep going. It doesn't have to be perfect all the time, right? So that those aesthetics when they came together, the imperfect imperfect with the Mr. Perfection people was a great chemistry. But when that balance was off, it's like I can't wait. Around for something to be perfect, because I feel like if you wait around, you're gonna miss the moment. So I wasn't gonna miss the moment. So I just kept, kept going. I mean, you know, uh, ego and all the same stupid shit that I should have learned from beat down was also an ego trip. But I think everyone has to come to that place. Not everyone had that moment where they realized, well, it's the same okie doke again. Why, you know? And people want to move on, right? Elliot wanted to move on. He's moved on fabulously and he's happy and it's great, you know? So he did what was best for him in the moment and I did what was best for me in the moment and I'm sure those guys did what was best for them in the moment.
1: Did you have to grieve at all?
0: No, because I don't, like, I have a bad memory in some respects, like, Ego Trip had some great highs and some great moments, but I can't really go back to what those moments were. Like, I can't feel those moments. Like, I remember a book release party for the Book of Rapolis, And that was cool because me and Chino actually had beef over some stupid graffiti shit. And he came to me and, and like very humbly and, and was like very cool and actually like apologized. And me and Chino had become good friends and collaborators on different things. And so I remember that because it was a moment of like, wow, this guy, who's like this graffiti dude who I respect when we weren't getting along, like humbled himself and showed who he really was as a person. And so that is an impression of an ego chip moment that means something to me because it helped me build a relationship with someone that I value as a friend. But. Nah, man, I just I keep going like I don't I can't get too stuck on what I did in the past. And um I think those guys are talented, I mean, obviously I benefited from the association with those dudes, and I still think that Gabe Alvarez is a fucking is a genius, but I gotta keep keep going so keep going so
1: while you guys were working on those books, you started sort of a side project endeavor by linking up with Pat and Adrian from mass appeal mm-hmm. um and that's sort of the beginning of this whole other part of your career that has really dominated the last like 10 to 15 years. Right. Um, How did that happen?
0: Well, coming off of doing one of the first graffiti zines, at at that point, there were way more zines happening. I'd go to Tower Records and look at all the graffiti zines. And so Mass Appeal was a zine that just kept getting better and better. I, I spent money on it, like I liked it. And one day I just called them up and I said, I got the voicemail and I said, Listen, you don't know who I am, but I love your magazine. It's great to see the evolution. The photography's great. I keep going. It's it. I was a fan. I spent the money. I had no expectations. And they called me back and said, Yeah, we know you're gonna hire you. I was like, nah, you can't for me, but keep going. Keep doing it. So they kept going, they kept doing it. And I think they got to a point where they had money. They approached me again and they said, Hey man, what's up with you getting down with us now? And I said, You know what? I have an idea. I'll be the editorial director as an old ass man and I have a young man who I think could do a great job. And that person wound up being you. Yes. So I came on as editorial director, Noah account Bever was the editor in chief. And then you brought on a world of people your age and your crew and your people who have since spread out throughout the spread out throughout the industry and have all these big fancy gigs. But like I, Liked mass appeal. I liked how it integrated all the things that I was interested in, and like graffiti, and like fashion, and music, and like it wasn't one thing. And I again connecting with my initial idea with ego trip, how the world was expanding, and people like me weren't so weird anymore. People liked lots of different shit. I think mass appeal did a great job. So that's how that happened.
1: I'm I'm curious because you know you're obviously at that point you're juggling this relationship where you're essentially in like uh you know, uh, everything is decided by five people, um, and at the same time, you're endeavoring to build this new magazine in somewhat the image of your initial sort of kernel of inspiration for Ego Trip, but with autonomy. And I mean, obviously, I I had ideas, and Mary and Brendan and all the guys had ideas, but we also deferred to you really as the leader. Of the thing, and I guess what was that experience like of of you know sort of oscillating between these two spaces um, of sort of shared responsibility and leadership?
0: I like both roles I think I love collaborating with people because you know even if I'm in a leadership position, if I've talented people on the team at the end of the day i come I'm, I'm gonna come up if you're talented and your shit's great, I'm going to look great, right so I like finding people who are talented, whose talents I feel like I know how to harness or how their talents can enhance what I'm doing. And I say, yo, if I, if, if I have control of football, take the football and do your thing. We all win that way. And that there's a formula that I can repeat. There's a guy named Hector Arias, who I met at Mass Appeal, who's an animator, artist in general. He does all my animations and stuff for my films. The guy's a fucking genius. He's like, you know, from Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Dominican cat, hip-hop, funny as hell, like a special person. And I knew early on that he was just a special person. And like, I feel so privileged that he works with me still. I mean, the stuff he's done for Louis Armstrong film that I recently did was just so next level and so creative. But Heck is one of us, right? And so I, heard, I work with Heck every time if I can. He's a super talented guy. So I... I've been lucky enough to meet people who are super talented, who are maybe younger than me. And I had certain learnings that I felt like I can impart on them or learnings that I can get from them, From them, right? It's reciprocal. So it's not just me being the OG. It's like, this kid's talented. What can I learn from him? And that's what I say when I get to a place where, where I don't feel like I can learn from people anymore, it's time to move on.
1: So you, you join Mass Appeal. You bring me on. We, we form a little you know Bad News Bears team.
0: Ebony and ivory type shit. <laughs>
1: exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think. And MassBeal, you know, starts to really grow as a magazine for several years. Um, you know, obviously, um, the passing of Pat was, I think, a pretty monumental um, setback, both for the business and also for Adrian and for everyone emotionally.
0: Uh, Pat being one of the co-founders of Mass Appeal with Adrian Moeller, Patrick Elasic, Elasic, and Peter, I mean, and Adrian Moeller. Yes. The co-founders of, of Mass Appeal. I mean, Mass Appeal was created in a suburban basement in Maryland by two white guys who were graffiti writers who painted freight trains. And, um, Pat was a, I mean, I think about Pat now, I just laughed to myself because he's such a unique guy, funny guy. It's like, you get a free pair of sneakers and sell them to you for like, we were the same size. So like, <laughs> He got them for free, but he sold them to you for forty bucks. Look, like, fuck it, all right, Pat. Here's forty bucks. You know, he didn't give a fuck. He loved to travel and surf. He was a good dude. And when he passed away tragically, it just changed the game. I think for Adrian, it changed the game. With a lot of stress, and um, you know, it just so happens that their good friend was a graffiti writer who wound up learning the art of hand painting. You know, uh, advertisements and stuff. from like one of the last living masters of that out on the west coast and they said hey why don't you come east and do that and so adrian started that business colossal media and that just blew up and so colossal took up a lot of his time and energy and was way more profitable and way less stressful and didn't have the same baggage and adrian was ready to move on and so and magazines were starting to be in the decline in terms of just people buying them distribution it was the, the game was changing so I think it was two thousand eight or two thousand eight when *Mass Appeal* shut yeah. down the magazine, so it was just time.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, once when Lehman fell, I, that was the death knell for a lot of print publications. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Lehman Brothers, like when the the recession or whatever start like really kicked in. I, I mean, a, a Complex, we had you know I took a pay cut. We had to let go of people, right. or, and I know you know obviously small business is even more sort of Um, sensitive to those kinds of twists. Um, As a sidebar, since you did mention my photographic memory, I just wanted to remind you of some of these amazing moments of serendipity and full circle. But, you know, in 1997, you are working on this Bad Brains story for Vibe that never runs, but starts to become the kernel of what was to be a book. And I learned all about HR and Daryl and all these guys. Cut to 2003 when I'm working at Mass Appeal with you and for you. And I get an offer to go work at Vibe. And you were, you know, I was against it. You were sort of ambivalent, but pushing me to at least contemplate it. And you and me and Daryl went out for dinner um, one night and he, And he sort of asked me what was going on. And I explained, well, I'm in this situation. I'm being courted by Bob, but I feel loyal to Sasha. He was like, look, man, so they want to sign you, but they don't want to sign your band. And I was like, yeah, basically. And he's like, let me ask you a question. Where would the Saint Lunatics be if Nelly didn't take that deal? I was like, "Okay." And he was like, where would D12 be if Eminem hadn't taken that deal with Dr. Dre? All right, I see your point. And I ran the same hustle that you guys taught me from Vibe of keeping all of the mass appeal people paid and employed by, you know, funneling the work from Vibe um, so that they could work on mass appeal. But I mean, that was all, you know, built off of architecture and paradigms that you pioneer. So I, I think it's important that that stuff is noted. So, Adrian makes the call that it's time to shut down the print magazine. This sort of coincides almost perfectly with the end of Miss Rap Supreme and the sort of dissolution of Ego Trip, and you going to Roadside and sort of making your first television projects as a soloist. Yep. Um, from there, you make a number of projects. You you go uh, you do the, the Terry Kennedy thing. Um, you do the. You took 50 Cent back to Africa? No, to, took was
0: them it? back to, to uh, South Carolina. South Carolina, Which, is, which is like Africa for African Americans <laughs> because most African Americans, when they came here, they came through South Carolina. So it is, in a way, kind of like Africa. But the interesting thing about that thing was a documentary for VH1 called The Origin of Me. We brought 50 Cent down to South Carolina where he learned about his ancestry, his great odds still lived there, and we took them. We found the plantation where his family worked and the same family owned the house. We took him there, and his aunt was like freaked out because she drove by that house her whole life and knew nothing of the story of what had happened there, what her family relationship was to the place. And like the guy who owned it was like an 88-year-old physician. He says, "Mr. Fifth I feel really bad about what happened here. You know, it's like you didn't have to do that, but it was a sweet moment." But um, his aunt, his great aunt, got freaked out, and we left. But working on that doc. I had the opportunity to direct for the first time. Um, we were in this museum of, for an organization called the Red Shirts. The Red Shirts were the pre- proto-clan before the clan, They were the Red Shirts, right? So there's this museum that's a tribute to the Red Shirts, right? So we go to the museum, and like Ron, the director, I don't know, he had a brain fart or he wasn't feeling it. He's like, "Go ahead, just go, go do it." And um, in that moment, I had the opportunity to direct 50, and I was like, "I can do this." You know, and uh, that that movie, that doc really opened my eyes to what was possible. I mean, not that I, I had always been working towards that, always wanted to be a director or a writer or whatever, but like working on that project definitely just opened up the doors.
1: You had mentioned, yeah, wanting to be a, a director, even in the, you know, early days of videograph and stuff. You know, as a teenager, what, what were the kinds of, of stories that you imagined telling, and, and what were the things that you were looking at that you were like, I want to make that?
0: Well, you know, my dad was a filmmaker. He passed on when I was really young, and like, one of the last things we talked about was hip hop, right? My dad lived up near Rocksteady Park, 100th Street in Central Park West. And so he became fascinated with hip hop, and he actually t- met with Bambada, because he was trying to do a hip hop film, and he knew I was into graffiti, and he started asking me all these questions about hip hop, and um, he died soon after that. but. um Back then, you know, seeing my dad work, he did a feature film called Cane River that was only recently released after like 40 years, like a couple of years ago. But it was shot in New Orleans. I got to spend the summer there. I was on set, so I was around this stuff most of my life. And so when I was in my teens, this is what. So since I was a kid, I was like, "Yo, I want to be a director. I want to be director." I like, I watched Gilligan's Island and like the credits. I was always like, "Sherwood Schwartz produced." You know, I could rattle off who produced Three's Company, you know, whatever. Like, I just pay attention to all that stuff. So I think it was just from early on, it was like programmed into my brain. I mean, I had an internship where I met Jeff Mao, Third World Newsreel. Mao had gone to school for film. He went to NYU. He wanted to be a filmmaker. So I guess I was surrounding myself constantly with opportunities and people and things that would get me closer to where I wanted to be.
1: I was always curious. I mean... You know, and it, it is no secret that your writing has been incredibly influential on my personal style and I think, frankly, an entire chamber of music journalists. Um, but it seemed like at a certain point you became somewhat disinterested in prose as your sort of main form of expression. Um, what drove that
0: in terms of what like writing for magazines yeah
1: i mean not, and not just magazines but just writing in general like you, to me you are one of the list writers that i've ever read or certainly read and definitely met
0: i appreciate that i think well writing works in many different ways when you're making a film you're writing When you're making a piece of art you're writing so i get bored and i go through phases and so I guess I had a down phase maybe when I wasn't writing as much, but then I wound up writing for the boondocks and doing some television writing. So it's still writing and developing things. But in terms of print, I mean, I think magazines were starting to go away anyway. And then like, at a point I was getting like four or $5 a word. And then when blogs started happening and people doing writing for nothing, I wasn't going to go back to like getting 10 cents a word. Like, nah, I was getting real money to write. And so I think I was spoiled at a certain point. And so I just kind of transitioned out of it in the way that many people did because the opportunities weren't the same, you know? You mentioned the
1: Boondocks. The Boondocks has gone down as now a, a really seminal cult classic. How did you get involved in that? And, and what was the sort of, uh, you know, nature of your participation?
0: Well, me and, me and Gabe Alvarez wrote for the first season. I'm trying to remember who hooked it up, but what happened was he was still doing the strip and he was still doing the strip and doing the show. He couldn't do both. This
1: is Aaron McGruder? Aaron
0: McGruder. So he needed someone to keep the strip going while he was doing the show and then also help out on the show. So me and Gabe initially were writing the strip, Boondocks. Really?
1: So, oh, so you wrote the, the newspaper? A couple of
0: times, yeah. Okay. And then we transitioned from that to writing on the first season.
1: And what was that experience like?
0: I mean... Aaron Magruder is obviously a very talented guy. Um, it's really edgy for the time, he's still pretty edgy now, today. And um it was a big deal. It's like, wow, Aaron Magruder, I know him, he's doing his thing, he's you know, I think he was aware of Ego Trip and um
1: gave us the shot. His sense of humor does align, I think, fairly closely to the type of stuff that you guys were making with the big book, of racism and all that kind of stuff.
0: I, you know, I had to meet him in LA once at his house at night and it was like a rare LA night where it was raining. You know, back in those days when people had cell phones, but it's still hard to get people sometimes. Cause so in LA, there's like bad reception in some areas. So I'm like, in the rain, and I'm calling this guy, it's like 20 minutes, he's not picking up. Then finally he picks up and he's like, where are you? I'm like, yo, I've been outside your house for like, you know, whatever, He lived in a condo, whatever. Like 20 minutes. Well, I'll send my man down, send his man down. And we open the door. And he had a fucking life-size Yoda in like this like bamboo forest and shit. It was like, what the fuck? It was just weird. Like a life-size Yoda, like in his crib. I my memory of uh, Aaron Aguda. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, we, we did random things.
1: Okay. Um, so, sorry. It, speaking of random anecdotes that I love, um, one of the pieces you wrote in the mid-90s for Vibe that you know, really was a life changer for me when I read it was the Queensbridge story. Um, The combination of deep historical reporting with your tone and voice and the candor that you were able to sort of elicit from uh, rappers who typically, you know, don't show that side of themselves to the press. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about You know the sort of circumstances that that story came together
0: well i grew up in astoria which is about a mile or so away from queensbridge so we all went to school together i knew all the queensbridge kids that my first girlfriend tanya was from queensbridge she had a sheepskin and it was like a big deal um but queensbridge and astoria were like cousins right who don't always get along because there are crack wars between queensbridge projects and astoria projects and you'd hear like Guns go off on Street where I live and the car would speed off. He knew the car was speeding off to Queensbridge and probably the same thing was happening in Queensbridge coming out of the car away. But um ultimately, we were all, we were all cousins. And um, so the vernacular that I had, I mean, I, I'm from the hood, from the same neighborhood. I know these guys, right? I know if I don't know them directly, we have people in common. We went to school together. So for me, it was an opportunity to put forth how it felt from an insider's perspective, and so it's great if you if you felt that from the piece. But uh, I didn't really know Nas well that then back then. I didn't really know Nas, and so I look back on my interview with him, and it was kind of like not standoffish, but he was like super young. I was super young, and he was like shit was just happening like fast for him, you know. So he was very serious and gave me a good interview. But like you know, it's not the rapport I have with him now. But um, Capone and Noriega. Uh, there's a, there's a photograph of tragedy with a silver briefcase with uh, a pot, a, 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 you know, the Pyrex or whatever that you cook crack with and like a, a major like shotgun or whatever. We're in, in Capone's house in the projects and there's a British photographer, a, a, a black British photographer who's like totally wild. Like, oh, sh-, you know, can't believe this. It's great. I say to these guys, yo, you don't have to do this. You don't have to show these guns. You don't have to do it. Just I, I wouldn't recommend it. They do it. Apparently a gun went off, right? I don't remember this shit, but a gun went off. Mind you, someone snitches and Capone goes to jail. Back to jail for years. Right? So I'm
1: like This is right as they're on their ascent before the first album comes out.
0: Yep. He goes back to jail. And I'm like I told you, fucking guys, you didn't have to do this, right? So for years, I'm thinking like, you know, these guys thought I snitched, whatever, whatever. And I run into Capone at some Biggie Memorial dinner. And he came up to me, he's like, yo, I know you didn't snitch, I know who snitched, whatever. I was like, I told you you didn't have to do that shit, right? So years later, the night of the fresh-dressed premiere, we went to an after-party at some stupid club up midtown. And I'm walking out, and I see Capone and Noriega, and they're laughing. yeah, no, we were just talking about you. I didn't know what they meant. They did an interview with Vibe online, where they told the story. And it was like, yeah, Sasha Jenkins, the writer. The gun went off, and, and the motherfucker jumped. like. And they laughed. and I, So then I ran into Norie after that. And I was like, yo, if a gun went off, I don't remember. But if it went off and I jumped, what's so funny about that? Like. Like, you guys didn't have to do that. Like, I told you not to do it, and look what happened, right? And they were joking about it. We had fake cocaine and sausage you know, and So I was like, what was I supposed to do? Put the fucking cocaine on my gums and shit? It's not my job as a journalist. If you guys are dumb enough to pretend like it was fucking cocaine, and your boy goes back to jail for some dumb shit for a photograph. So that's what that article represents for me. It's like, it was um, a great opportunity and I felt like I was, they gave me carte blanche to really tell that story in an interesting way, but behind the scenes, like, I felt really bad about Capone having to go back to prison because he's a good guy and it was just totally unnecessary.
1: Wasn't there a moment with with tragedy also where he was like on the rooftop scoping you or something?
0: Yeah, I mean, he claims he was on the roof. Okay. I take him at his word. All right. You could have been on the roof saying, so he's watching me. OK, what are we going to do? Throw a brick at what we going to do? Like, you watched me from the roof. So who knows?
1: So getting back to you taking control of this uh, documentary featuring 50 um, and and.
0: Well, it was the is I didn't take control no, no. of the film. OK. I had the opportunity you, to direct the scene.
1: So, yeah. So tell me, how does that get the wheels turning in your head? It.
0: I mean, it's what i always wanted to do. And I've done it my, on my own with little small projects, but I, I, you know, after working in production and seeing how everything came together, I was like, I can do this. Like I can have a good rapport with people. I know how to interview people. I know how to like, because to me, documentaries is journalism with cameras. It's what you're doing, right? With cameras. So it's like, I know how to interview people. I know how to like, connect with people and get what I need from them, you know? So having that experience and like this woman who was the curator of the museum or ran the museum was literally telling 50 Cent with a straight face that the slaves who worked here were happy. And so I said to 50 Cent, ask her, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that, ma'am? Well, because we knew them, like, well, you're not, you're old lady, you're old as shit, but you're not old enough to know a slave, right? So then she went on to say that there was Mongolian slaves and said all these things that just made no sense. So in the film, it's a bit of a comedic moment where 50 Cent, this woman, we were talking about Mongolian slaves, which just makes no sense. So in that moment, like, I got to sort of see journalism at play, and actually it turned into like a lighter moment, which... I love moments of what could be better intersection of race, humor, and like saying something. So that moment just opened doors for me in my mind. And then um, Mass Appeal happens, right? So Philip Leeds, who worked for Pharrell for many years, is an friend, old friend of mine.
1: So that was the, the last roadside? Yeah.
0: I was ready to leave roadside. Um, what happened was automatic picture, automatic films When I went to them and did the deal, they are like, what do you want, money or equity? And I was like, put everything on the table. Give me equity. I know this shit's going to blow up, right? So I didn't have such a huge salary, but I had all this equity. And then, like, things were slow going. So at a certain point, my wife was pregnant and had to make money. So we kind of killed Automatic and just collapsed everything into roadside. I became head of development there, had a much bigger check. But then all these things that I had in development for Automatic started to happen. Terry Kennedy happened. 50 cent happened, so I was like fuck like I did all this shit it didn't happen fast enough but now it's happening so now I'm at roadside
1: and you don't have the skin in the game on the back no I'm
0: decent jack but no I don't have the same skin in the game so I was ready to leave and I felt like I had learned all that I could I learned a lot from Ron and John those guys and I'm thankful and so I was talking to Philip and we were talking about starting a creative agency and he says we should meet my friend, Peter, Ben He's got a company called Decon. I said, I've seen the stickers before. Said, yes, my man, let's go meet him. So we go down and meet Peter. And he's like, I know who you are. You guys have a great idea, but I, I got you by five years. Well, Sasha, why don't you come up here? Why don't you become partner at Decon? So I was like, all right, worked it out. Came over to Decon. And about six months into it, I thought about Vice and all the things Vice were doing. Vice was doing at the time, and I thought about Mass Appeal, I'm like, I remember when the Vice guys used to write to us, the Vice guys were huge fans of ego trip and Mass Appeal, right? Uh, they won't tell you that now, but I've, I've got letters, they called us. So I was like, wow, look what Vice has done, They're killing it, you know, got to respect that. Well, like, why can't we do the same thing? but more I
1: remember they, they sent us the Bismarcky cover that they did, it was like him and like an astronaut thing or something. So nice. I remember, I, yeah, I just remember you getting that at the Ego Trip office and being like
0: I don't even remember that, but uh, so, so that's cool. So you have photographic memory. But <laughs> so yeah, seeing what Vice had done and we spoke with Peter and Peter's like, Well let's, let's bring the band let's bring back. So I spoke to Adrian and got his blessing. Even though the first time Peter met Adrian, Peter says, Yeah, I just bought the domain name from Massapiel.com and Adrian's looking at me like, what? what? But Adrian ultimately gave us the blessing and was cool. And, like, you know, he says today, like, he had no idea that it would turn into what it's turned into. So he was happy to see what he had started with Pat to continue to live on.
1: Peter has the eye of the tiger. So he's, a, you know, that, that sort of tracks with his personality. Yeah. So you get back involved with, with- with Mass Appeal. At what point did you become a a partner in Mass Appeal? Was that part of the relationship with Pat and Adrian, or did that happen
0: afterwards? Well, I was a partner with Pat and Adrian, the magazine, and then the magazine died. And so when I joined Decon, I became a partner at Decon. And then when we started Mass Appeal, I was a partner in Mass Appeal. Yeah, okay. new company, new, okay. new everything. I mean, I, I'm the one who brought Masterfield to the table, so I should be at the table.
1: And how did you guys uh, end up getting Nas involved?
0: You know, Peter and Nas had a bunch of interactions um, over the years, and uh, Peter was constantly talking to Nas about what we were doing and stuff. And Nas said, cool. I mean, I at that point, I didn't know Nas as well as Peter for sure. Um, so they had a relationship. And um, now I signed up and has been a serious ambassador, like, you know, serious meetings. I mean, uh, Lucien, I remember having a serious meeting with Lucien uh, in, in Universal, and they wound up investing a bunch of money in us. But it's funny, before the deal went down, someone major at the company pulled me aside and said, I'm going to ask you a question about your issue with so-and-so record executive." And I said, I don't have an issue. It's not a big deal. It's over something really silly. Like, I've got no beef. But if they want to be mad at me over a uh, 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 fresh-dressed or whatever, you know, whatever, but it's silly. So that was a lesson in learning how deep people's relationships are in the game. But here I was with Peter and Lu- and Nas meeting with Lucian about, like, Doing this deal with them investing in us, and like we have this big conversation, and Lucian leaves the room, we're like we're gonna look at each other, like eating and shit, and like what's gonna happen to come back? Like we're gonna do this deal, right? And so that was like super exciting and, and cool, you know, like coming from where we, where I've come from in terms of doing magazines in my bedroom to like having people wanting to invest millions and investing millions of dollars in the company, it was super exciting, you know. So, but Nas is a very important part of. The credibility. And I think bringing it full circle, going back to you and him and me, the first cover you did at Mass Appeal was Nas and Arts Professor. Yep. Like everything comes full yep. circle. You know? Mr. Elliot Wilson winds up working with Jay-Z. I wind up working with Mr. Asir Jones. That's crazy. Everything just the way the world works is like there's a rhythm to how things work out. And I just don't question it. I just roll with it.
1: I'm curious, when you guys relaunched, it started with you know, bringing the magazine back, relaunching the website, and it was probably about twenty-four months from there until Fresh Dress, your first documentary feature, comes out. And what was what was the path of sort of building that, both the infrastructure internally and also getting those deals in place and creating that confidence in the marketplace that buyers are, you know.
0: Well, I told Peter that it would take about a year or two to get something on TV because you got to develop, you have to build your relationships. And so I was with CAA at the time. Uh, They were representing me uh, just as a writer and producer. And so um, I told my agent at CAA that I had an idea for a film about hip hop fashion. Right. And so he's like, that's a great idea. And so then I called Philip and Philip. Actually, called me. Philip was working for Pharrell, and Pharrell's clothing company, BBC, was part of a conglomerate that had other brands, right? Iconics or something. Iconics. Like that. And so they're having an Iconics meeting, and they're talking about Rock and Wear, about how they need to make a documentary, a Rock and Wear documentary to air on BET, like an infomercial about how Rock and Wear is cool. And for some reason, Philip raised his hand and said, I know the guy who should do that. You gotta know, talk to my man, Saucy Jenkins. Another guy in the room who was big cheese and iconic an iconics is a guy named Jamil Spencer. I knew Jamil from Vibe. He said, Oh, well, I know Sasha. That's my guy.
1: He was the head, one of the heads of ad sales, right? Right.
0: He said, Have him come in. Right. So I come in and they have him meet with Jay Z. And I was like, Jay Z, like, rockwear is cool and everything, but you don't want to infomercialist to make a film about hip hop fashion in general and have the Rockaware story be a part of that. So I like that idea. Right. And so. I told my agent, my agent says, Well, can you get Jay Z on tape? If you can get Jay Z on tape, like we can sell this. So, call back, can I get Jay Z on tape? Yeah, you gotta fly to England tomorrow. So, I'm on a plane to England tomorrow. It's the end of some big tour. I'm backstage somewhere. And I see Jay Z, he's like over there making the rounds. And he's like not coming towards me or whatever. I'm like, All right, you know how it is rappers, and, you know, whatever. You don't wanna like sweat them or whatever. But he's a very intelligent guy. He's he's reading the room. He's doing his, he's doing his Jay-Z thing. He comes over to me and says, Yo, I, we, we, I got you, don't worry. Just have a good time, don't worry. Someone taps me over my shoulder and hands me champagne and it's fucking Rihanna. I'm like, oh shit, this is real, right? So that goes down. Everyone clears out. Florence in the machine, this one, that one. We just go in his trailer and I do this interview with Jay-Z for like 20 minutes. And so... We make a sizzle with Jay-Z on the tape. We're about to go out. And then Jay-Z's whole game changed. New manager, new, Manili's not in it, this one's not And I knew John Manili because he did money management for my man Chaka's band, Orange Nine Millimeter. So when I ran to Manili in England, he's like, oh, you're, you're good. So he made sure I was good. So all these relationships I had from different worlds, you know, from Vibe with Jamil and Philip from like Hardcore and Graffiti. From Chaka, from money management, his band, all that shit. That's crazy. That's how that cocktail came together. And so then um, CAA took it out. And I met with a guy named Vinnie Malhotra, who was an Indian brother from New Jersey. who's a big exec at CNN Films. He's was like, I love brand new. I was like, oh shit. We just hit it off. He got, what the, he got the film instantly. He was like, we're going to do this. And that's how that happened. So we do that. And that first dress has opened so many doors.
1: So what were the sort of biggest learning moments for you as a, as a first time feature length director?
0: You know, learning how to manage the team and sort of what I said earlier about like finding talented people and letting them flourish. Like I didn't really know to, I mean, I didn't really know that many editors or, or, or DPs or whatever. Right. So it was learning. I mean, everyone on the team was great, but like, Learning how to manage all that was the biggest challenge at that point. But um, I mean, we, we traveled to France. We did a lot of travel for that film. And I learned a lot in the travel and all the, the movie parts and people. I mean, from Dapper Dan to Damon John to, I mean, it's a pretty broad range of folks that we were able to talk to. But no one had ever done it. I mean, hip hop, fashion is such an important, integral part of hip hop. And the fact that no one had done that before just was like, I mean, people still talk to me about that. I mean, I haven't seen that film in years, and I'm sure it's cool, but some people are like, yeah, that's your best shit. I love first dress, you know? So that, that opportunity just created, opened the door for everything else.
1: So then, you know, once you've put that under your belt, um, what were the next projects that you started to develop?
0: I think I did a film called Word is Bond.
1: The, this is about the art of
0: yeah. rap writing, right? Yeah. Um, that was sponsored by, paid for by Sprite. Okay. And wound up on Showtime. But, you know, I went everywhere to, like, Minneapolis and the Rhyme Series guys, to Detroit with with, uh, Royce, to Nas, to a really broad range of, like, MCs and kind of got to understand their process. And then from there, I did a film called Burn, Motherfucker, Burn. I
1: was going to say, then you sort of stepped out and did something outside of the sort of, strictly speaking, music culture space. You know, one, I guess, I'm curious, how did you and... Peter, think about that fitting into the Mass Appeal brand and then were the studios, um, you know, did they share your ambition to do stuff that was not, uh, you know, so sort of like tried and true?
0: Well, what happened was Vinnie left CNN and went to Showtime. So that film was at Showtime and it's Vinnie, right? So he's like.
1: So he trusts you. And- to have
0: a benefactor, to have a, a patron you know he's been a huge patron of my filmmaking so here's this brown brother once again giving me a shot and saying you know this anniversary of the so-called riots in the los angeles are coming up do a film can you do it I'm like i'm a guy from new york i don't know shit." but yeah i can do it and so there's a lot of hip-hop in that film in terms of who i spoke to and the approach so it's working with language that i know you know but i
2: was
0: in in the hood where um, Florence Normandy, where this one journalist, who we went back with the journalist, this white guy, who got the crap beat out of him and we went back to the location where it happened. And so I'm in the hood with a camera crew, I don't know shit. And this guy, this drunk guy walks by and starts talking shit. He disappears, he gets on the phone. We get swarmed by like 30 dudes. Like, yo, who the fuck are you with? What are you doing? You can't just fucking come. kids come to the fucking hood and shoot, who, fuck you? And I was like, yo, from New York, I'm a black filmmaker. What, what, what movies have you done? I was like, I did a film called Fresh Dress. Oh, you did Fresh Dress? All right, you're good. So, Fresh Dress actually saved my ass in the hood. That's crazy. And so, but I learned, like, yo, know, LA, you can't just show up. Like, you got to quote unquote check in. And so, you start to see that people in LA, in the hood, know about production companies and like ask all these very technical questions because you come to the hood, you pay. And I, I didn't pay. I, I, I'm not, and I'm not bragging about not paying. I just had no idea. So me being naive kind of saved my ass. And frustrated saved my ass. It's crazy. But uh, Burn Motherfucker Burn was something that went beyond hip-hop. And uh, also opened doors in terms of people understanding that I can tell stories that aren't just hip-hop.
1: Absolutely. So from there, you, you know, help Peter and you build out a much larger infrastructure, right? at Mass Appeal where you are overseeing lots of these films, some of them that you're directing, like the *Of Mikes and Men, the, the Wu-Tang story, and others that you're sort of helping to coach other young filmmakers. Um, what was that process like?
0: I, again, I love collaborating with people. Um, so when you have a director that has a, a point of view, that makes a big difference. I mean, uh, Nas wound up directing Video Music Box. Um, There was another director initially attached to it that didn't work out. And Nas came in and had these ideas. He grew up loving Video Music Box. So for me, it was natural for me to say, Nas, you should direct this. You know, so he got his first directing credit, but he directed something that was very familiar to him, familiar to anyone in New York who grew up in New York knows Video Music Box. Like, that's the shit. And so to be able to be an adult doing stuff like that it was super cool.
1: How do you, you know, over the course of your career, you've had many different permutations of business partners. You know, obviously the relationship with Peter and with Nas has been ultimately very successful for all three of you. Um, What do you think is sort of the key to navigating that?
0: Understanding everyone's individual strengths. You know, Peter is, very passionate and can sell you a tomato and a pizzeria. You know what I mean? So he has the kind of voice that can really urge you to like, maybe listen to what he's saying. Right. And so that energy goes a long way. Like I didn't really have that ego trend. You know what I mean? I didn't have a Peter Bin bender ego trend. And you know, those guys, there's no Peter Bin bender in that bunch.
1: No. Well, he was. He is in many ways your your Dame Dash, right? Like he is. You know, no. I, I mean, that in the best in the best ways, both to Peter and to Dame. Like they are unrelenting and very focused and driven, and want to deal with the parts of the business that are not necessarily the parts that you are particularly interested in. At least. Right. I say that from the outside looking at it. I don't, you know. Yeah,
0: I mean, I'm interested in business, but you, you can't do it all. At least you can't do it all well. Yes. I mean, at Ego Trip, I did it all. But like, did I do it well? Not well enough to sustain it. So when you get a partner who's good at what they do and they have a lane, it's kind of like Suge Knight. It's like, if you don't want your CEO dancing all up in your video, like I didn't want my CEO dancing in my video. You know what I'm saying? I wanted a CEO or whoever to focus on being a fucking CEO, not dancing in my videos. So that's what I learned about partnerships. You need to have a deline- delineation of like who does what and like a real appreciation for who does what and how they do
1: it. And and where does Nas fit into all of that?
0: I mean, Nas is a guy who's extremely worldly. And has, you and Drop his name, people will drop what they're drinking and want to talk, but he has good, sensible ideas based on growing up in the hood and understanding that, but also having, I mean, he's in rooms with people I'll never be in. He's eating caviar I'll never eat, you know? So his experiences in life were definitely valuable to how we shaped things and the approach to the company. I mean, he's, you know, one of the greatest writers of our time. And so to have that association in hip-hop I mean, his, his, his reach goes beyond hip hop I and mean, people know him everywhere. So Mass Appeal continues to benefit from that association.
1: Uh, you know, to me, your piece de resistance at Mass Appeal is Up, Mikes and Men, um, which is a tremendous achievement in filmmaking um, on any on any and every level, but particularly if you know the intricacies of how Wu-Tang works. And I know from coming out of hip hop publishing, for example, the source famously published the Wu-Tang logo in 1997 because they couldn't get the nine guys to agree on one photo. Um, you know, how did you manage to wrangle that situation and also to produce such a magnificent pro- product at the end of the day?
0: Well. My agent called Mass Appeal and said, look, guys, you're uh, he was working with RZA and he's like, they're looking for a director. You want to put your hat, throw your hat in the ring? I was like, hell yeah. got to get on a plane tomorrow. You RZA. So I got on the plane and I flew back that same day. I really? flew out to L.A. and came back the same fucking day. But I flew out, got with RZA and I knew RZA a little bit from... Beat down and being in the game. It, many friends in common. This guy Mike McDonald, who's a graffiti writer.
1: He was a graffiti. Asked, yeah. And he was their original manager, right?
0: Yeah. And he's one of Cage's, you know, original partners. Yeah. Um, you know, when you when you're doing names around like Mike McDonald, they know that you know what you're talking about, right? So they're on Mike's name and other people's names and you know, had a conversation with Rizza and he said, you know, Ron Howard wants to do this film, right? And I said, Look, love Ron Howard, he's great. But he ain't going to do what I'm going to fucking do. It's just not possible. You know, I'm of this shit. I was there. Um, when Mike McDonald was promoting Protect Your Neck, we would go out together promoting Beat Down and Protect Your Neck at record shops. Like, we were hand in hand, going hand to hand with people with product. I'm like, yo, this is in my DNA. And then the skit on the album where... Uh, the radio host is like, oh, you want to hear that? We'll again and again. That was at City College. And I went to City College, and I was there when that call came in. I was sitting, I was cutting class when that call came in. So I'm like, yo, dude, I'm your guy for this. Like, I'll I'll kill it. It'll be great. Trust me. So fly back the same day and got the call like Rizzo says, you're good. So that's how that happened.
1: Crazy. And... And during the process of putting that thing together, it's a very candid take on, you know, this relationship of these nine guys, which has been very turbulent and tumultuous over the 20 years. But they all face it with, uh, I think, a real candor and honesty. Um, how did you sort of navigate all of the politics of? that ensemble
0: you got to understand the politics and you got to understand the emotions and the sensibilities of each person because they're each individuals and while they're proud to be recognized as Wu-Tang as a whole they're all very adamant about being recognized as individuals so you have to really respect the individual nature and sort of try to work to get the best from them I mean Master Killer is probably the least known person in Wu-Tang but like his story about his dad like leaving his house and like walking up the street hearing him sing when he's coming home from work or like I mean to me all of that gives you a real window into who these people were like they're human beings they're not just like thugs or gangsters or like I grew up with these guys I grew up with guys just like this and some of them go to jail right and people categorize them as animals or monsters right and you know many guys in the clan have been arrested things have gone on but I know these guys in my neighborhood they are smart. They love fucking comic books. They're geeks, right? They don't want to sell crack. They want to rap or they want to be artists. They're all really creative guys. And the Wu-Tang guys are like of my era. They're very hip-hop. Like Ghostface Killer has a hand style, right? Raekwon has a hand style. Like Inspector Deck has a hand style. All all the elements of what people call hip-hop today, like they grew up with it. With me, we're about the same age, so they're talking to. I'm talking to the guys in my neighborhood. when I'm talking to them, right? So they're going to feel more comfortable. They're going to feel like I don't really have an agenda. And ultimately, RZA and his brother were executive producers. And I swear you, RZA didn't see the thing until it was done. And he said, "I wish I would have seen this sooner because there are some things I ch- I would have changed, but it's, I got to live with it." You did your thing. Well, if I had it my way? The things I would have changed. Because it was very personal. It was very like, and I don't know if it was a combination of Rizzo was too busy or he just trusted me or somewhere in the the middle. He left me alone.
1: So, I mean, it's unbelievable because there are, I mean, there's many parts that give him and all of the members their flowers, but there are some unflattering moments throughout the film that really, you know, uh, I'm sure show, sides of them that they would probably prefer not be you know in this sort of uh, seminal documentation of their you know artistry um but that's incredible that you,
0: you i know. mean we had a great archival team as well i mean the archival this the stuff that we got like you guys son getting shot and like being in a hospital room watching them on arsenio or whatever it's like you can't beat that the archival is just incredible
1: no, I mean, and and the mix of human drama and, you know, historical context, I think also really gives the film and, and the guys, uh, you know, a, a, a humanity that is, you know, more than you see in most documentaries uh, related to music broadly and certainly to hip-hop more specifically.
0: Yeah, I mean... I thought it turned out okay. We got nominated for some Emmys and um, people dug it.
1: Let's say it t- turned out better than okay, but that's just me. After that, you started working on uh, an incredibly personal project that um, I think sort of is a full circle moment in your career, um, which is getting involved in helping to facilitate the release of your father's feature film that he directed, you know, in the, I guess, months or a year before he passed, Right. how did that happen?
0: So my dad was mainly a documentary filmmaker, one of the founding producers of Sesame Street, um, the Africa correspondent for a show called Black Journal. So he there's footage of him all over Africa in the sixties and seventies doing his thing, but ultimately he wanted to make feature films. So, uh, he raised the money. From one of the richest black families in New Orleans, the Rhodes family. They are in the mortuary, mortuary sciences. They own funeral homes. Um, every anyone black has been buried by the Rhodes family in New Orleans. The woman he was dating at the time, she was friends with that family, and they had a they had a, a, a niece or whatever who wanted to be a filmmaker as well, and so they they got behind the film, and. Um, before he died, he was close to getting distribution for it. Richard Pryor really wanted to help get it out there, but um, the patriarch of the Rhodes family did not want to lose control, so he kind of vetoed it. Then my dad died, and then we go to the funeral, and people were like, "We're going to pay for your college," and the film is going to do, blah, 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 and then like, nothing happened for years. So I don't know. Six years ago, I just Google my Google my dad randomly, and I find an article in the Times about a place called Indie Collect and they're an organization that works with orphan films, films that are just out there and no one knows much about them. And this place, do art where they process all the film, had storage of all these films and they're getting rid of it. They're shutting that floor down they need to get rid of all these films. And so the Indie Collect people stumbled upon my dad's film, Cane River, and it was in the article. About this incredible film, *Cane River*, but it's been lost for forty years. And
1: and first, what was *Cane River* about? And then, second, what state was the film in in terms of editing and production, all that? *Cane
0: River* is really a love story uh, about race and class and things like that in New Orleans amongst Black people. It's a a quote-unquote Creole man who's in love with a more phenotypically African uh, featured woman in New Orleans and sort of the politics of that and what that meant at that time or even today. And so that's what the film was about. And, um, the distribution didn't happen. He died.
1: So so the, but the film was completed. It's totally completed.
0: Soundtrack, is vinyl is an album. I've had, I had the album my entire life.
1: The soundtrack. So the soundtrack was released, but the film never. The
0: soundtrack was made, but not even released. Okay. Like they had boxes of vinyl. Like I've had the vinyl three years. And so um, I reached out to Indie Collect and said, I'm, I'm the son of Horace Jenkins third, and I'm a filmmaker. Like, let's connect. So I met with them, and they did a great job in sort of getting it to where it was. And I said, we've got to look at distribution. They recommended folks, and then Adam Yock's company, Oscilloscope, was interested. And when I heard that, I mean, Adam Yock was I considered him a friend. I knew him. And um, obviously he passed away. But the fact that they were interested in distrib- distributing my dad's film, I was like, this is coming from the great beyond. And so they distributed the film. The film came out like uh, two weeks before COVID. It was released in theaters and then COVID hit. So if it had would have come two weeks later, it wouldn't have had its theatrical debut. So my dad's film finally made it to theaters it's amazing so and now it's on the criterion channel and it's it's out there so people dig it
1: i mean congratulations that's a thanks beautiful thing to yeah have happen to, to make happen really after doing that during covid i know you started working on the Louis armstrong documentary that came out this spring um Again, this is sort of, you know, obviously your entire career has dealt with the intersection of music and culture and race. So in certain ways, this is completely within your wheelhouse, but knowing you and the music that you tend to listen to in your recreational time, I don't think of Louis Armstrong as like a top 10 artist. So how did his story land on your radar and how did you wrap your head around, you know, pursuing this project?
0: The nice people at Imagine Entertainment reached out to me about it, and um, I was honest. I was like, I, of course I know what everyone else knows, but I'm not super deep into Louis Armstrong. And they're like, well, we did two years of research. Check all this stuff out. And when I saw the research, and when I learned about the tapes that he made at his house, like, just talking shit, when you hear him talk, it's like, that's why I tell people hip-hop has a 50th anniversary, and it's cool, and everyone should get paid. and I'm down with it, but like, Hip hop is way older than 50 years old, man. Louis Armstrong, that motherfucker, was hip hop. Like a motherfucker, you hear him talk. Like you you have this squeaky clean image of like Louis Armstrong being this classy guy. and Not that he wasn't classy, but like, he was a regular motherfucker who like, talked that shit, you know? And When I heard all that, I was like, wow, like, people don't know this about this guy, you know? I'm, this is incredible. And so I did more and more looking into the research they had done, I was like, this is incredible. So it was happening during COVID, so that was a challenge, but it's really a largely archival film. I wanted to get people in their own voice during the time that he was alive, people who actually knew him. There are a couple of interviews that are contemporary, but mainly it's people who knew him when he was alive. So I wanted to, and because it just gives us this feeling of like hearing directly from Armstrong, it's very much in his own voice. And, um the guy has a very powerful presence. I mean, his house in Queens is a museum. It's as he left it. I mean, obviously taking some things out with his wife's nightgown is still on the bed. I mean, it's just like insane. And there's this room that was his favorite room where he made these collages, right? He made these he does fine art like for himself. He wasn't trying to like show his art to the world. He did this for himself. And that room was where he had his reel to reels and where he listened to music. And so they know the last song that he listened to before he died and they had the actual record and we had the actual turntable. So we shot the reel to reels moving, right? They fixed them to get them to work. So we're like, alright we're going to plug in the turntable and get the thing to work. And so we plugged in the turntable. It wouldn't work. Kept trying it wouldn't work. Spun it manually, spin it manually. And then we'll just shoot it spinning, right? April in Paris is a song. They unplugged it, they spun it, record started playing. Um, I, um, there's seven or eight people who are in the room with me. It's like, no bullshit. Like, the guy is fucking real and present. And I was like, okay, this guy I feel like he approves of what's going on. I'm just going to roll with it. That's crazy. That happened with Biz Marquee. So I just finished a Biz Marquis film. We're in Red Hook, Brooklyn at the sound stage, scouting the sound stage. And we were talking about. I was talking about making a Bismarcky cereal, like a cereal box, or like you know, for the set, like you know, Gold Link cereal or whatever. Bismarcky with a gold chain or whatever. Someone tapped me on my shoulder, like, look over there. There's a homeless man with a shirt off with a gold chain, fat Dookie rope. Like, when do you ever see homeless people with gold chains, Dookie ropes? I mean, it probably yeah. wasn't real, but like, these things come from like. Elsewhere, and I just roll with it.
1: I was going to say, with both those projects, you're dealing with a protagonist who is no longer with us, and obviously, in both instances, there's you know depth of archival footage. But as a filmmaker, how do you, how does that change your approach to the storytelling um, and and crafting the narrative?
0: Well, I mean, thankfully, in the case of Rick James and Armstrong and Biz. There's a wealth of like, they're in their own word stuff out there, right? And so, once you get familiar with their in their own word stuff, you start to paint a picture of who you think they are. And once you have that picture based on what seems to sync up with what you believe, based on what you hear, then it becomes much easier to sort of craft something that feels like them. In the case of Biz Margui, I met with Biz when he was alive. We talked about doing a doc, I talked about puppets, I talked about all the shit. And I couldn't, when he was alive, I couldn't get anyone to bite. He dies. Vinny came through, right? But um, you, I had a sense of biz from meeting him. You know, we're in the elevator. This Japanese woman has this puffy coat. He's like, can I touch your coat? He's just like, can I, can I touch it? She's like, okay. You know, it's like, that's biz. So I wanted to do something that was, tonally like him, that's the point. It's always like a portrait. You're painting a portrait of someone. You want the best paints to put that together, you know? And so you, you you talk to people who knew him, you talk to people who you don't expect. It's always the unexpected. And so when you interview Rakim, you go back to his high school and he tells you, I met him in this lunchroom and he just, you know, everyone tells a story about how biz they met Biz in, this, in, their, in their lunchrooms, but he didn't go to that school. That was his hustle lunchrooms, right? So you learn this stuff and you're with Rock Him at his old high school and he's sitting there and you ask him that question, you know, as an interviewer. So, so where were you when, when you heard he passed away? And he fucking just like starts wailing, right? Like, he says, right here is where I went. And I just got chills. Like, and he's not like, he's not like, Not cut off the cameras and he was having like a vulnerable moment, like because he was in his pain. I was like, "Fuck!" Like, I had the idea to go back to high school, but I had no idea that it was going to be this. And like, when do you ever see men, but black men in general, crying on fucking camera? I mean, like, you never see that.
1: And Rakim, in particular, of all right people, of all black men. I it that moment I told you had me verklempt. and it's 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 a powerful scene and and an honest scene that I think it takes a very special hand as a filmmaker to create that moment um and I, you know that that wouldn't have happened for every director or any director other than
0: yourself perhaps well I mean it's it's research it's being sensitive and being thoughtful and having a real conversation. I mean, it's, a, it's an honest question. I mean, you asked everyone that towards the end of the interview. I didn't know that that's what was going to happen, but that's what happened. And um, it's those moments that make you feel like you're doing what you you know you know what you're doing, or like you're connecting with people in ways that like have value. Like, and that's how, kind of how I feel about hip hop filmmaking at this point. Like, I don't really, I'm not against hip hop, but like. Other people should step up. Not that I'm the only one, but like you got to tell the Wu-Tang story. I got to tell the Bismarck E story. I did a film about people who write lyrics, like someone else can tell these stories, you know? A new generation of kids or people can tell those stories. But I also feel like hip hop is a marker in time. I don't believe, especially with black music, there are no genres. Jazz, Louis Armstrong caught a gun charge at 14. Riz's mother ran numbers. So did Rick James' m- mother. It's the same story over and over again. It's a reflection of and reaction to the environment every single time. So hip hop has its time, but like hip hop and jazz and blues, it's the same shit because it's the same people going through the same shit with the same result. So you can call it hip hop or techno or whatever you want to call it, but it's really the same thing. So with that sort of mindset, that's how I approach these films. So well, I'll, I'll tell you, yeah, you know, I don't want to do hip hop. Like, okay, I do it. I do Outcast stuff, though, you know. But like, I am doing hip hop in a way because it's all the same kind of conversation. And so, having the privilege to make films about Black artists from different generations, not many people have had that privilege, but I realized that that access to information has led me to understand what I believe today. There's no genres. It's like, it's the same story over and over
1: again. I'm curious, you know, when you're approaching putting together one of these documentary features, um, there are so many different moving parts from obviously a litany of interviews that you're going to do, all the archival information that you're going to, you know, pull, um, animations, puppets, you know, reenactments, all that stuff. What is your process for sort of organizing all of that? and planning it out because obviously as a viewer when you watch it feels like a million perfect tetris pieces that fit together and you know it's it's seamless transition from one thing to the next but obviously i know that at at one moment you have zero interviews with anyone and then all of a sudden
0: it's the personnel you know you gotta choose the right personnel and understand everyone's strengths you know um you need to understand what your what your vision is, but then you also gotta ingest what it is that they bring to the table. And what they bring to the table will enhance what your ideas are. So really understanding your team is an important part of it because when you know that someone's solid in a certain regard that takes your mind off of something you've always got that you feel like you've got to double check. The less that you have to double check and the more faith you have in your team, the more ability you have to be free and creative. Like with this Bismarcky thing, like, you know, he passed away. He was in the hospital for a year, dying, right? And his wife was with him every day. And I learned that through interviewing her, and she said, "I have a journal where I documented everything with his hospital stay. And every day, I wrote in my journal." So I didn't go into the film saying, "I'm going to get Bismarcky's wife to be Bismarcky's wife with a puppet." I went to the, into the film. Wanting to interview her. And then when I learned that, I said, All right, I got to recreate the hospital room and I got to get you to be you with a puppet. Weird fucking ask, right? I had no idea if she could pull it off, but she does. And she does because she was there and she loved her husband. And it's a little wacky, but I think it's very biz. You know, Biz, I mean, how else do you want to treat death, like, with a guy who's loved by so many people? like, Is it really serious? You know, like, and some people aren't going to like it. You know, Big Daddy Kane, who said he loved the film, doesn't like the puppets, and I can respect that. I mean, he has a different relationship with Biz than, than I did, so I can't go against him for that. That's how he feels. But he said he learned some things in the film and he appreciates it, but he's not a big fan of the puppet. It's not for everyone, but... I felt that the puppet was really true to who Biz was, what he would have wanted.
1: So So I know that recently you decided to step down from Mass Appeal uh, as an active participant, obviously remain a partner and invested in their continued success and growth. Um, What animated that decision?
0: A real desire to, to focus on directing and doing something that's a little bit more boutique and not, you know, 40 employees and all that that goes with that um Mm -hmm. i feel like i'm in a stride now where with my directing where i'm getting these opportunities and you're not going to be here forever you know i'm I'm, you know getting into my twilight years and shit and like it's the filmmaking is evolving it's getting better right so while i have this opportunity to focus on that i want to do that it's hard to do that and really give massive people what they need like they need a person who's not just directing films, but really working to develop ideas and develop shows and stuff. And so, I also felt like it's better for Mass Appeal to have someone who's solely focused on development. So it's like when you're doing development and directing films, it's it's more of a challenge, right? But when the mothership is a motherfucking mothership and there's a lot of mouths to be, you know, you got to really be on it. And so. That's kind of where I'm at. I think with Resurgent Pictures, uh, which is myself and Raquel Cepeda, who's my wife, and who's a filmmaker, um, I think that stuff that we want to do is a little bit more uh, broad. Um, hip-hop is a big part of Nas's DNA, and I'm sure it can obviously go well beyond that, and they are making strides to do that. Um, I directed a film about uh, Ed Sullivan, that Mass Appeal is involved with. So hopefully that'll help people understand that Mass Appeal is capable of doing more. But for me, again, going back to, like every 10 years or so, I get to a place where I feel like I got to move. I feel like uh, I wasn't, there's not much more for me to learn at Mass Appeal. And I don't feel like I was able to teach much more to people. So it was time for me to just move on. But I hope Mass, I know Mass Appeal will continue to thrive and, you know, more to come from them.
1: You have a lot of documentary features under under your belt. You know, obviously we've talked about your father being a, a documentary filmmaker who took uh, his talents into the scripted territory. Do you ever imagine yourself moving into that space? Totally.
0: Um, that's why there's narrative a bit in the Bismarck film. You see, you know, so my, my dear friend, Michael Caves, who hosted us here, um, played the good doctor and um i've had an opportunity recently i'm not going to say which movie but it started a a rapper and i just didn't i I didn't i didn't know that script wasn't for me i probably should have done it but i didn't but um I'm, i'm optimistic that other opportunities will come so we'll see working on it
1: cool that's all my questions thank you sasha I want to extend my deepest gratitude to Sasha for the impact he's had on my life and the blueprint that he's made and continues to iterate on. Sasha says it best when talking about what inspired the recipe that became Ego Trip and birthed countless careers. I wanted it to be a reflection of my life. That's the idea generation takeaway from this episode. Make your work a reflection of the things you're passionate about and then apply yourself to that work with a dedication to match. Do that and your path to fulfillment is set. Thank you for tuning in to the Idea Generation podcast. It's our pleasure to highlight the stories of the most important creatives working today. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and show your support by leaving us a rating, or better yet, a review, on your podcast platform of preference. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but it can make a world of difference in helping others to discover the show. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Noah callahan Bever. If you're a creative person interested in pursuing a career in arts and entertainment, you won't want to miss the latest episode of Idea Generation. On this week's episode, I sit down with documentary filmmaker, author, and independent publishing legend, Sasha Jenkins. Over the course of a nearly 35-year career, Sasha has directed definitive biopics on the Wu-Tang Clan, Rick James, and Louis Armstrong, among many others, and provided a blueprint for covering convergence culture as the founder of the Ego Trip Collective. He's also birthed the careers of myself and countless others. To find out how he did all this and more, tune in now wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to our partners at Tres Generaciones Tequila for making today's episode possible.